Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, seasoned journalist Michael Cranish. Cranish has written biographies of Thomas Jefferson, John Kerry, Mitt Romney, and Donald Trump. And in September 2019, Michael Cranish sat down with fellow biographer and friend, John Jack Farrell, to talk about his latest biography, The World's Fastest Man, The Extraordinary Life of Cyclist Major Taylor, America's First Black Sports Hero, was published by Scribner in 2019. Michael started by telling Jack why he chose to write about this little-remembered African-American sports icon. In uh, 2001, when I was a reporter for the Boston Globe, I wrote a magazine story about Major Taylor. And that story appeared the weekend after 9-11. And the days of uh, written letters, I got a lot of response from people really interested in the story of this person who was the first real African-American sports champion people wanting to know more. He had lived in Massachusetts. That's why I was writing it for the Globe. And at the time, his then 96-year-old daughter, Sydney, was living in Pittsburgh. So I went out to see her. And in doing that story, which I spent a few weeks on, I got really interested and thought, maybe there's a book here. I'd never done a book before. I'd been a reporter all my life and hadn't really thought about doing books seriously. But given the response and then given my interest in perhaps telling a larger story about civil rights, the Gilded Age, the Jim Crow era, I thought maybe I can turn this into a larger book. And then, as I mentioned, it appeared uh, in the magazine in the Globe the weekend after 9-11 and everyone's life, including mine, changed. And so I put that aside. But as I was a reporter with the Globe, just like you were, Jack, I wrote more and more longer stories, series of stories. And I got really interested in exploring further uh, into the lives of presidential candidates. Anyway, a couple years after doing the magazine story, putting aside the idea of doing a book about Major Taylor, um, John Kerry was running for president. You and I worked on a series with other reporters, a seven-part series that ran 14 pages in the Boston Globe in 2003 about John Kerry. And we did such deep reporting. For the series, not the book. For the series. So it seemed inevitable that if he was going to be the candidate, we'd done such unique work that we could turn it into a book. So some months later, uh, I did call the editor of the Boston Globe, Marty Barron, who's today editor of the Washington Post. Marty is famous now from Spotlight movie fame. For many reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not just for being my editor. And the, uh, (laughs) you know, we proposed this as a book. And, you know, he was enthusiastic about this, very enthusiastic, thought it was a great idea. There had been no book on John Kerry at all. And we had done by far the deepest look at his life. Independently, you were interested in your family's genealogy, and that led you to learn the genealogical tricks that allowed you to make a huge discovery about John Kerry. Right. Well, I had done a lot of research in the days before Ancestry.com and the Internet um, using microfilm of the National Archives and elsewhere to um, accurately trace my family's history. And then when we started on the John Kerry series, uh, Marty Barron had said, leave nothing on the table. So I talked with him and I talked with you about this. And we all assumed that a name like Kerry, that John Kerry must have been Irish. Everyone thought he was Irish Catholic. Um, The bottom line is using the same sort of genealogical methods and a lot of reporting and a lot of discussions with you. 
we learned that John Kerry, actually the family was named Kohn, K-O-H-N, uh, that the family had been Jewish, that they changed their religion to um, Catholicism to avoid anti-Semitism, and that they simply picked the name Kerry because they dropped a pencil on a map of Europe and landed on the County Kerry of Ireland, and that's why John Kerry's name was John Kerry. And we wrote it as a story of discovery. I went and talked with Kerry for, for hours and you know, told him this. And you and were telling him I was telling stuff him. about his background that he didn't know. Yeah, yeah, I was telling him things that he said he didn't know, yeah. uh, to be clear, about his background. Yeah. In his recent autobiography, he's, he repeated that he did not know this till I told him. Yeah. Don't leave anything on the table is the lesson for young biographers who are out there. Yes, and the real lesson, I mean, the instruction, the real lesson, which I've taken or tried to in every book I've done, every story I do like this, is don't assume what you're reading in a hundred different places is correct. Read it, see what someone else has said, but just because it's there and repeated endlessly, it doesn't mean it's correct. So read what's out there and then start from scratch with primary sources. And I've used that in many stories um, and in many books. So doing the series really was a work of biography. So that really got me interested in doing biography. Did you find it fulfilling to go that deep? I mean, is this... Was it like a light from heaven opened up when all of a sudden somebody said, don't leave anything on the table, go as deep as you want? Well, I mean, very much. I mean, I'm still, even as a reporter today, it's something that we constantly face. People are reading on their phones. You know, stories should be shorter. In this case, we did something that I don't know that the Globe had ever done, which was a seven-part, 14-page series. We did the same thing for Mitt Romney. And the key here is let's not worry about the length to start because I've read very short stories that read long. And I've read very long stories that read short because they're gripping narratives. So it really depends on the storytelling. Let's just not focus entirely on the number. Uh, really, de- let's focus on the writing. And then all of a sudden, you're down at Monticello, living on Thomas Jefferson's property in a cottage for writers and residents. Yes. And you're writing this amazing slice of life book about the third president. Well, after doing the Kerry book, basically, and I did that with two other people, and you had contributed, and other reporters contributed. So it was a book I worked on, but it was something we probably did in about six weeks. Um, so it was a quick job. And I wanted, I, at that point, I thought, oh, I really enjoy this. I basically sat in my home office and worked for six weeks every day, every night, every weekend. And uh, my kids put a sign on the door that said, uh, you know, writer at work. <laughs> <laughs> Grouchy writer at work. <laughs> no, no. And it was a lot of fun. I really yeah. enjoyed. Don't, f- don't feed the bear. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed sinking in. Um, yeah. And that's the fun of working on a, on a book. In this case, I knew there'd be a ready audience, you know, given that he was, in fact, the nominee for, for president. Yeah. So I, that, that's good to know. Um, so it gave me an interest in doing my own biography of my choosing without the deadline of the day, without the news of the day. So uh, I had been interested in Jefferson for a long time. My parents had taken me to Monticello a number of times. And at some point, I learned that Thomas Jefferson, when he was governor of Virginia, had to flee Richmond and then later had to flee Monticello. When he fled Richmond, the person chasing him was none other than Benedict Arnold, the traitor who had joined the British. And I thought, I never knew that one of the most reviled men in history, Benedict Arnold, had chased one of the most revered men in American (laughs) history, Thomas Jefferson. And I wondered if there was a story in that. And so I figured out that there had never been a book on this topic. And I thought, if I can find a narrative and then tell the larger story, that's what I wanted to do. So I ended up uh, basically retracing Jefferson's steps as he was governor of Virginia in flight from the British time and time again. 
it's a pretty darn dramatic story. And oh, I it is. It's, it's a great story. Thank you. Um, before we get to back to poor old Major Taylor, who was like put on your back <laughs> shelf all this time, um, you did uh, Mitt Romney, which was a, a group project as well. Did that with Scott Hellman of the Boston yep. Globe and some other reporters. Yep. Um, and then you did this fellow named Donald Trump. Yes. So before he was president, right. you were up there interviewing him. Tell us about your initial impressions. Well, when I came to the Post, which was in January of 2016, um, at that time, it seemed clear that Trump might be the nominee. And of course, one of the things that people asked me right away is, well, if you've done Kerry and Romney, you think there's a book on Trump, and people weren't sure he'd be the nominee. But long story short, I did explore this with publishers and an agent, and there was a lot of interest in, in having the Post do a book. So with Mark Fisher and then with a team of sometimes it was 15, 20 people, we ended up saying, we'll do a book and do a book really fast. We'll supplement it with a lot of people and the post resources and do a lot of stories. As a result of our reporting, we'll learn a lot more about him very quickly and we'll do stories for the post in real time and then use the combination of material to make a book out of it, which came out actually in August of 2016. So we did this on a very, very fast track schedule. Trump gave us a lot of time. As a team, we interviewed him for probably 25 hours. Mark and I sat with him a couple of times in person uh, for I think it was an hour or two each time. I talked to him on the phone. In addition to that, other reporters talked to him on the phone. So in person, it's not like at the rallies where he's very boisterous and he's feeding off the crowd and so forth. In person, he's much more soft-spoken. He tries to appeal to his audience of two in this case, as opposed to the audience of 15,000. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very hard to keep him on track. So basically, the only way to interview Trump is to interrupt him constantly because you can ask him about issue X and within two sentences, he's talking about what a great developer he is. And you have to just kind of constantly go back. It's like, what about this? What about what happened here? Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we tried to do that. We talked to a lot of people who knew him. But given the time frame, we felt it was the most comprehensive look at his life. It was very well received. Yeah. yeah thank yeah. you. And how did he... Um, given the fact that he has since made a name for himself by declaring um, the press the enemy and talking about fake news, did you feel that when talking about himself and talking about his family history that there was more of a reverence for truth? I think perhaps he appreciated that we were coming to him with a lot of information that even he didn't know in some cases, just like you know with John Kerry, not as dramatic. But certainly he couldn't help but see that we were really going deep. And he did, to his credit, sit down with us. Before the book came out, he tweeted, don't buy it, it's boring. Well, of course, he had not read the book. You know, it was not given to him. He told us he'd never read a biography of a president. So um, it seems like he would not have read the book at all. Um, There was not a single thing in the book that he or his staff said was wrong. We really wanted to be fair and accurate as we possibly could. It was fact-checked and fact-checked again, and it was lawyer and all that stuff. I mean, really had all the resources of the Washington Post uh, to produce this the way we did. The big difference for Major Taylor is that I wanted to write about this individual who was the first African-American sports champion because I felt he was a civil rights hero who really was little known, little understood. Yeah, well, before we get there, don't yeah. just tell everybody yeah. who, who he was. So Major Taylor, Marshall Walter Major Taylor, was raised in Indianapolis. He uh, became a cyclist at a very early age, came under the eye of a bicycle manufacturer who'd been a great champion himself named Bertie Munger. And Bertie Munger made bikes in Indianapolis and saw that Major Taylor was an extraordinarily fast rider. At this time, bicycling was the most popular sport in the country in the 1890s, more so than baseball or boxing. Um, If you can imagine a time when there are about 5 million bicycles and just a couple of hundred cars in the country, and those cars are basically experiments made by 
bike manufacturers. They didn't have brakes oftentimes. They didn't go backwards. Um, you know, the, the main way to get around had been the horse and buggy. So when the bicycle came around, it was considered sleek, modern, and the version that we know today with the two equal size wheels had come into being a few years earlier. So you didn't have to climb up in this high wheel bicycle, very difficult yeah. thing to ride. So Major Taylor, under uh, Bertie Munger's tutelage, became a great racer. They moved to Massachusetts together. Bertie Munger said, come with me. I'll make you the, the fastest bicycle rider in the world, and one day you'll return to Indianapolis as the champion. And that's exactly what happened. What I found so interesting is that in the 1890s, as Jim Crow was getting worse and worse, and um, just after Plessy versus Ferguson of 1896 was decided that institutionalized racism with a separate but equal uh, decision— Seven months after that, Major Taylor finds himself in Madison Square Garden at the greatest arena in the country, at the greatest racing event of the day, the six-day race, where you go around the Oval for six days, whoever lasts the, basically the most miles is the winner. It's an all-white race, except Major Taylor somehow gets himself into the race by going to the promoters and convincing them that as a black, he would actually be able to get the promoters to promote this as a black versus white race. And later in Major Taylor's career, the promoters would produce buttons that said black versus white. They really played upon this. But the promoters initially were very reluctant. They said, if you race here, there'll be riots in New York City. We can't do this. But they eventually came around to realizing he would be a draw. And incredibly, in the preliminary match, he actually won the sprint in a preliminary match against the greatest sprinter of the day. And then he lasted all six days, whereas many of the great riders dropped out. And you know, the fact that he was able to win the sprint and then survive the six-day race, he became an international sensation. And I found that he was one of the most chronicled African-American individuals of his day. He was written about around the world because there were racers competing against him from around the world, and the journalists from around the world would come and write about these races. So this is the first African-American superstar. Yeah, before the phrase even existed of superstar, he clearly was. There was one other individual who I think was a welterweight champion who wasn't anywhere near as well-known Major Taylor got enormous publicity for years. He raced not just in this country, but in Europe, uh, as champion of France, champion of many other countries, raced two seasons in Australia. He really was the first African-American sports hero. And people often ask me, well, what about Jack Johnson? Well, Jack Johnson actually wanted to emulate Major Taylor. Major Taylor became the um, national and world champion and world champion in 1899 in a race in Montreal. Uh, Major Taylor had, when he won in United States often would play racist songs like Dixie and so forth. When he won in Montreal, they played the Star Spangled Banner. And he later wrote that I never felt more American than when they played the Star Spangled Banner for me in Montreal. I'm choking up. It's <laughs> really, me too. I tell that story. So that was in 1899. Jack Johnson wins the World Heavyweight Boxing Championship in 1908. But initially, Jack Johnson wanted to emulate Major Taylor. Um, he became a cyclist. And he was a great cyclist for a short period of time. One day he raced in Texas, and he was in a terrible accident. This was a very dangerous sport. Major Taylor later wrote that 11 of his colleagues at least were killed, many others seriously injured. There were no helmets, constant concussions. He went at incredible fast speeds in tightly packed groups. And he, very, has, he as the black guy, was constantly pushed off the right, track people by were the after him. Yeah. They, they would sometimes choke him on the track. I mean, he was really a target. Very dangerous sport. Jack Johnson, nonetheless, saw, well, Major Taylor is a champion. He wanted to be a champion, too. He raced... Um, in Texas one day, and he was in a terrible accident, hospitalized, serious injuries. And he said that's when he decided he wanted to participate in a less dangerous sport of boxing. <laughs> so <laughs> I found that anecdote to be remarkable and really tells you just how dangerous cycling was and also how well-known Major Taylor was to the other later champions of the day. Yeah. Now, cycling has been a great recreational sport 
forever for, since they invented these mm-hmm. pneumatic tires. And in France and uh, international bike racing in the Olympics, it's a big sport. But what happened to it that, I mean, did just baseball and football come along and, and replace it in the hearts of people? There was this period where um, bicycling helped create the auto industry. There were, they used pacing vehicles, which were like motorized bicycles that led to the motorcycle. There was a lot of bike manufacturers started experimenting with cars or airplanes, but in the case of the Wright brothers, many of the Auto companies started with patents from the techniques of using bicycles. So eventually, auto racing faster attracted more crowds. So the type of cycling I'm talking about in velodromes, these oval cathedrals of cycling, it withered away. Um, Today, we know most of the cycling races as the long-distance races. There are still velodromes, um, and the Olympics have these kind of track cycling, which is what basically Major Taylor specialized in. He never did the Tour de France. He didn't, other than the six-day race, he didn't do long races, really. He especially was the sprint. Yeah. He had amazing thighs. Like, he, right? he started out, this is one of the interesting things I found in my research. In the book, I have an appendix on his training methods, because if you look in the book in the photo insert, um, there are photos of him as a scrawny kid. Look, you would never think this guy was going to be a world champion athlete. He applied incredible discipline to make himself one of the most fit human beings on the planet. And that sounds like, how can you say that? Look at the photos of a few years difference. He disproved the racist eugenics theories by studying the best training methods possible and showing that anybody who applied himself could become a great athlete. And here's someone who's 5'7", 150 pounds. So he said, if I'm an ouncer over my ideal weight, I lose my competitive edge. Um, He studied studies that showed how to eat. He, he read books by uh, other athletes, how to train in the best possible way. He really became a student of this. And that's why one of the things I found so fascinating, that's why I wrote the appendix yeah. that talks about this. Yeah. Now, you had to resurrect him because yeah. he was forgotten. Um, is it just because bicycling as a sport became less popular or was it because he was uh, a black champion that we wanted to forget or that he was a black champion, unlike Johnson, who ha- had a very uh, controversial uh, career. He was in a sport that no longer is as popular as it was. He, there's no audio that we know of or video film that we know of. So his arrival in France coincided with a new leap in photo technology. So there's these beautiful pictures of Major Taylor. Um, but there's film of other cycling around the time. You can really imagine what it was like. And there's the photos. You can stitch them together and get a good idea. Yeah. So thankfully, the photos really... Uh, do help us. So I think that's one thing. Um, But there was an effort by a lot of folks to basically, uh, for racist reasons, you know, put him down. And so maybe that's part of it as well, racist reasons. He wrote an autobiography, uh, which was helpful. Uh, A lot of it was clippings and so forth, but Mm -hmm. there are a lot of gems in there for me as well as a writer. Um, And then he he died basically forgotten and in poverty. Um, People have written about him before. Other books have been written. I felt you know, the, you can you can say the same thing about Jefferson. Like, but people have written about Jefferson. Why do you want to do another book? Well, I think that I found something there that had been written. In the case of Major Taylor, I wanted to do a book that wasn't just a book about cycling. I really wanted to write about the intersection of the Junco era and the Gilded Age and all of those characters that are so fascinating. He interacted with W.E.B. Du Bois, with Booker T. Washington, with Theodore Roosevelt, and on and on. So I just thought he was a window, this incredible, fascinating figure the thrilling narrative is there, built in, that I can explore, and then I can use that constantly to build out the history uh, of the era. And that, for me, as a writer, you could say I started writing this book when I wrote the magazine story 18 years ago and finished it earlier this year when it was published 
18 years. So it's called The World's Fastest Man, but it wasn't the world's <laughs> fastest book. But it's something I sort of nibbled away at even as I wrote other books. And my method is on my computer, I've got hundreds or thousands of files. Every single one is dated. So I put in, might say, 1896, Major Taylor wins Indianapolis race or whatever. So when I go back to it, even years later, everything's in sequence. In choosing Major Taylor as a uh, um, as your subject for your biography, you have to talk a lot about race. Yeah. Do you find it difficult, or how do you get around writing about someone who's of a different race than yourself? Well, that's something that's a, that's a great question, and um, you know, I address that. I talk to people. Um, in fact, when the book was um, being drafted, I asked the Taylor family, who I've gotten to know very well, for example, please read this book, and if you think in any way I don't get it or I'm missing something, you know, let me know. So I was very conscious of that. I talked in detail with my editor about that. So black or white, for anybody going back in history, they would have faced a lot of the same challenges. But I was certainly extra conscious of that, and I always wanted to make sure that I was aware of that. So I really spent a lot of time trying to understand that. Um, and hopefully I, I did. That's what I wanted to do. In the case, particularly of Major Taylor, I'm completely free to say this man was an American hero. You know, this was in the 1890s, early 1900s. He faced incredible racism. It was incredibly unfair. He should be remembered today as one of our great civil rights icons. Um, so I can say all that, which I would never say about someone I'm writing about currently today. So it's just a very different type of thing. But I think because I do a lot of writing that also in, for the Post and other papers that have involved writing about history. Um, so it just so happens that I, I'm able to apply my techniques as a reporter to my history writing and my techniques as a history writer to my reporting. Yeah. So for me, it's a wonderful two-way street where I can go back and forth. And I think it all melts together. For the uh, beginning biographers out there who are listening, um, what's the best advice you have for them for the, to actually get through the writing process? I take some notes in the field, but basically everything's written down. If I don't write it down that day, it's just not going to be the same. So sometimes it's so vivid, I'll actually write a draft of something because I know it will fit in the book. Other days... It might just be you know, a lot of written notes, but I want everything typed so I can search by keyword, take advantage of the computer technology. Um, that's really important to me. So even when I'm writing a very early draft of something, even that'll have footnotes because I don't want to have to worry. Footnotes are the biggest pain. Yep. And you could spend yep. months trying to resurrect, you know, where did you find that? Yep. So having done a number of books, I learned pretty quickly, you know, just do that all the time. Always, wherever you see something interesting, you know, note the source, do it in footnote format. You'll just be able to cut and paste later. You know, all those little things, you know, are helpful. Yeah, definitely. Um, and what was the challenge in selling the idea of a book about a black superstar that nobody remembers anymore? <laughs> the key here was that I was going to approach it as a, you know, a book that I saw, like, here's compared to Seabiscuit, compared to The Boys in the Boat. Yeah. It's not an obscure story about a cycling guy no one remembers. It is a story of our history. It's a story that tells us who we are. It's a lot of people who've read the book typically tell me it's even worse than I thought. And I think good, because we need to understand how tough our history was, um, you know, the racism. But, you know, there were people who saw in him that this could be a man who could be transformative, that he could disprove the racist theories of the day. And Taylor's message was that all you need is a fair shake, that if you are given a fair shake and you persevere, you can succeed in any field of human endeavor. That was journalist Michael Cranish talking about his latest biography, The World's Fastest Man, The Extraordinary Life of Cyclist Major Taylor, 
America's First Black Sports Hero, published by Scribner in May 2019. Michael Cranish and John Farrell's interview was recorded in September 2019 in Washington, D.C. You can read more about bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palmer created our theme music. And until next time, thanks for listening and have a great day. Thank you.